Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cupper. I'm John Perry. And today we're asking the question, will the future be ruled by algorithms? So today we have a guest with us for the first time. We're sitting here with John Danaher. Well, actually, he's across the ocean. Yes, he's Skyping to us from across the Atlantic uh, in Ireland. Where he's a lecturer at the National University of Ireland. But I know about him through his blog writing, mostly. Uh, He's a prolific blogger who writes about technology, ethics, and law, and all kinds of topics that relate to the things we discuss on this podcast regularly. So today we're going to be talking about rule by algorithms or the term algocracy. So, John, why don't you start us off by just kind of giving us a definition of what the term algocracy means? Uh, yeah, sure. So um, thanks. And just to say as well, it's uh, great to be here. I'm a big fan of the podcast. I've been listening, I think, from maybe the second or third episode. I, I can't remember exactly which one. Um, so algocracy, as you might guess, is a variation on things like democracy or bureaucracy. So uh, it's ruled by algorithms. That's what I was using the, the classic Greek term for democracy, ruled by the people or you know, a technocracy ruled by a technological elite or something like that. So there's just a variation on that, that, that term. I think algocracy emerges from uh, the convergence of a few different trends in technology at the moment. One is uh, obviously the internet and particularly the internet of things. So you, you're developing a network of objects that are all linked to the internet and data is being recorded from them and uploaded to some kind of server or system. The second thing then would be a set of data mining algorithms or predictive analytics algorithms, which bring together all that data, organize it somehow, and then make predictions about how people are going to behave or what people are likely to do, what kinds of things people prefer, um, how they behaved in the past, all these kinds of things. Right. And then there's some mechanism for feeding those predictions forward to decision-making systems in society. And when we're talking about algorithms ruling us, could you give maybe some examples of what sorts of algorithms we might be concerned about that would be governing us? Uh, so, I mean, examples of algocratic systems in practice at the moment, dating websites have a kind of algocratic air to them. So ah. you're matching people based on data that they upload and sure, you answer make, some issuing questions. recommendations to them. Sure, sure. So that's a situation where the types of matches you would even be exposed to would be determined, at least in part, by, by the programming that's at work. Okay. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're trusting OkCupid or Match.com's algorithm for joining you up with somebody who's an appropriate uh, match for your romantic interests. That would be just one example of an algorithmic system. There are other ones in government. Um, so there are algorithms used to detect likely tax cheats and then maybe issue a recommendation for them to be audited. There are a number of governments that are now, now using those. I believe the US IRS uses them, and there are proposals to introduce them in a number of European countries as well. As maybe a similar example to that one, I've often had my credit card... Uh, right, preemptively... Uh, yes, yeah, suddenly frozen, frozen uh, yeah. because of some activity that I did that apparently was suspicious, like going to a gas station I don't normally go to. Um, so would it be safe to call that this type of system as well? Yeah, absolutely. And actually, that's one of the better studied examples. There are algorithms used for credit scoring to figure out what kind of credit risk you are. And there are also then 
algorithms use to figure out, you know, what kinds of behavior are indicative of um, a stolen credit card or some kind of credit card risk. It, it flags it up in the system. And I, I don't think I've ever had the experience of my credit card being frozen, but I have frequently got uh, phone calls from bank wondering why all these transactions suddenly were taking place in a foreign country and whether I was traveling abroad or something like that. Well, since these are all modern day examples, I mean, can we say that we're already living in an algocracy or? Um, sh- I, I don't know. I guess w- with algocracy, I'm imagining that it, it totally takes over control of public decision making in particular, the, the kinds of decision making that would ordinarily d- be done by uh, politicians or bureaucrats. So that's what the rule by algorithm. That's uh, the sense in which I'm using the term. But yeah, sure, we, we're certainly tiptoeing into an algocracy as we speak. Right. It does seem like more and more areas of our life are affected by these uh, somewhat opaque uh, processes that we're talking about. But yeah, at this point, we don't, for example, have a system that's you know reading people's preferences and spitting out laws that are then followed by our enforcement agencies. Uh, uh, even with like the IRS example you gave, uh, they flag you, but then a, a human being still goes over your accounts and audits them, for example. So there's still like a a strong bureaucratic part of the process that is not ignored, you know. Uh, so it might be that we're relying more on algorithms to determine who goes into that bureaucratic process, but you could easily imagine the entire process being handled by the algorithm directly, right? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, there's there's perhaps a classification system that has already emerged in debates about drone warfare. So drones would be another example of a, a kind of an algocratic system where um, decisions are could be potentially made by automated devices for delivering payloads to a target in, in the military operations. Some writers distinguish between what they call human-in-the-loop systems. So this is where Robots can select targets, but they can only do so with a human command. So a human is in charge of the decision to attack somebody. Mm -hmm. Then there's things known as human on-the-loop systems, where the robot can technically select the target and deliver the payload on its own, autonomously, if you like. But there's always human oversight and the possibility of human override. Mm -hmm. And then the final type that people talk about, which we haven't quite got there yet, would be human out-of-the-loop systems. So robots act completely autonomously, selecting targets and delivering the payload without any possibility of human oversight or override. Right. I guess if we, if we reach that possibility of humans are out of the loop, they're pushed out of the loop, then we'd be in an algocratic society for sure. At the moment, we're probably in the early stages. We're still in the loop, so to speak. Sure. Well, and it seems like one of the ways, like, like Ted was just talking about how, you know, when it comes to legal matters, like say whether or not you're cheating on your taxes, the algorithm is just an input to a bureaucratic process. Uh, and I think it's, it's hard to imagine how we, well, we, you know, I don't want to say never, but how we would get to a point where we would completely erase that bureaucratic process. But I, at the same time, I can imagine the algorithms just sort of doing an end run around the entire legal system to where like, for example, if we had, you know, fully autonomous drones, then, you know, maybe after the fact, there could be some sort of lawsuit, you know, regarding what the drones may have done. But the fact is, they've already done it, right? So that's a way in which you could get to a purely algorithmic result by really simply ignoring the legal system, right? In that case, the human can uh, take a look at the loop after the fact. (laughs) Could do some loop review. That's one thing that could happen. And just 
Yeah, even in, I think there are problems with like human on the loop systems where you have a, a system that is effectively fully automated, but there's human oversight just insofar as humans may not be willing to um, second guess the machine or the algorithm or don't feel they're qualified enough to second guess it, or they're just reluctant to do so for some other reasons because it's just easier to let the system run automatically. Right. That seems to interface directly with uh, known biases, right? Where um, people who uh, get used to expert systems often over-rely on them. And that seems to be across the board true. Like I've seen people looking into uh, autopilot for airplanes and how you know they find that the computers fly the planes fine and the humans fly the planes fine, maybe a little less well than the computers. But when the humans are relying on the autopilot, they do worse than either system on its own because they don't take over when they should uh, as often as they should. So that I think that, yeah, that definitely leads to a potential problem of people's own sort of cognitive laziness leading them to allow mistakes to happen that they actually had the ability to, to foresee and avoid. Whereas if the human has to affirmatively target, which is, I believe, how the current drone systems work, uh, they're more engaged in making sure that that's a good decision. <laughs> yeah, so like if, if the system is such that it's necessary for some kind of human input, like it, it won't work without... Right, like it won't actually human. fire the shot until you hit a button yeah. on your joystick sort of thing, right. Yeah, that, that's what I would classify as the first type, the human-in-the-loop right. system where uh, humans are a necessary part of the um, process. Yeah, the human on-the-loop system is one where they're not a necessary part of the right, process. Where they're just overlooking it. Right, I get it. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I think, you know, it, what's interesting about that to me is that uh, that's totally a design decision. You know, there's no... You can make a system where you design the system to need the human to put the input in, uh, even if the system is fully capable of making that decision on its own. But perhaps you do that just as a design decision in order to keep the human engaged and to interface with their the, the human biases in a way that's profitable to the to the process that you're trying to do assuming of course that the human is actually going to be engaged which is the issue you were just talking about right, right? right. which is well, that the human in the loop um may or may not uh trust their own judgment they may defer too often to the algorithm right so right i think that's a bigger uh risk with these human on the loop systems on the loop, yeah, that right. we're talking about where the human input is not strictly necessary for the machine to work. Like if it's just, if it's going to do null, if it's going to not take action, for example, not fire, if we're talking about a, a drone that's targeting a potential enemy, unless the human hits the button, then that I think doesn't interface with that. that well, that bias I, I would disagree though, because if the algorithm like says, you know, we think with 95% certainty that this is the right target, affirm yes or no well that's different right that's i feel like that's uh that's a middle ground isn't it between i feel like that's an in the loop moment where it pauses but it gives you a very strong recommendation and if the human is not if they're just blindly trusting the nature of the recommendation that's i feel like a failure mode for in the loop right Sure. well as soon as it says we have 95 percent certainty or something then that's going to affect the human Decision making for sure. I think that all of a sudden makes the makes those lines blurry again to me as far as like the in the loop versus on the loop line. Like even if it's going to take a null action if you don't affirmatively press the button, if it's sitting there going say yes or no, say yes or no, that's like that's that's starting to move toward that other thing to me because it's gonna obviously it's gonna push the push the human toward wanting to press the button and and say yes, right? Yeah, I mean, um, so of course, like these three categories may not work in in you know, they may not map perfectly onto reality. They, sure. It could be blurry boundaries between them. 
But um, one thing as well, just to flag, would be that there are pressures in place to push humans off the loop. So, you know, Google with their self-driving cars, I believe the report that they had was that, you know, the only time accidents have occurred is when humans have stepped in and second-guessed the machine. Right. So if you have more data like that coming up, that problems arise when humans actually step in, um, there might be pressures to make these more automated as well. But yeah, it's always going to be a design decision. That's another uh, point that is worth making. Right, right, right. If the human is not adding to the process, if they're not making the process more effective, there's going to be strong pressure to eliminate them. And I mean, when you're talking about drones and killing people, obviously it's super, that's super charged um, topic, high stakes topic. But that's a case in which I would assume that any human intervention is going to result in fewer deaths um, just because of the likelihood of a human having empathy versus an algorithm seems <laughs> infinitely higher. And uh, there's been a huge problem throughout all of warfare history of people, uh, you know, when they're in the situation, just straight up refusing to shoot. And uh, that, I think, has to do with fundamental human nature uh, and, and, and our morality. Yeah, absolutely. And, and of course, as you point out, like in, in the more high stakes areas or the highly charged areas, like killing people, right. um, those pre- it might be easier to resist the pressure to push humans off the loop. Whereas uh, in other contexts, when it doesn't seem so high stakes, it might be more difficult to resist that pressure. I mean, this is one hmm, thing I, maybe I wanted, I'd like to bring up perhaps my, my favorite example of a, of a system that uh, raises this. I was going to talk about it later, but it's worth discussing now. Amazon warehouses will probably be fully automated in the future, maybe quite soon, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. But uh, for the time being, anyway, there are a number of them that uh, still require humans to stack the shelves and to fill orders for customers. But a number of them now are relying on what's known as a chaotic storage algorithm. I don't know if you've ever heard of this or seen the news stories about it. No, that's news to me. What, what is that? So I guess if you were a human being... Uh, well, I guess you are a human being, sorry. So, <laughs> you don't know that. Uh, you have <laughs> no true. proof through Skype kind of that I'm not boss. some sort of really awesome chatbot with a great uh, voice uh, generation yeah, ch- algorithm. Turing level um, intelligence. This would be know. a strange first use for to start a futurism <laughs> podcast, <laughs> but you know. It's not likely, but you can't be certain. But anyways, anyway, we're digressing, yeah, sorry. No, no, we, I claim to be human. Continue. Yeah. So a human would, would stack a warehouse uh, following some sort of logic that is understandable to humans. So if it's books, you'd stock, stack it according to author or genre or something like that, or genre and then authors within. Right, or alphabetically genres. or according to barcode number or something like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So the chaotic storage algorithm stacks um, warehouses in accordance with available shelf space. Mm-hmm. So you map out every uh, foot of uh, shelf space in the warehouse um, and you know exactly how much is available at, at any given time and you assign goods or stock that's coming into the warehouse to whatever space matches it best. The reasoning behind it is, is that it's a much more efficient system. It leads to uh, fewer or less waste of stock and it makes it quicker turnover of stock as well in the, the warehouse. Some, somebody in um, Amazon came up with this a number of years ago. For it to work, you, every item that comes into the warehouse is tagged with a barcode. Then an algorithm determines where it should go in the warehouse according to the available shelf space. Somebody stacks it in that or stocks it in that position. And then when it comes time to fill an order, 
um, an algorithm plots a route through the warehouse for the worker to follow to find the items that they need to fill the customer's order. So, I mean, I like this example because a human being doesn't have the cognitive capacity to themselves store all the barcode numbers and have a map of all the available shelf space and plot courses through it. They can only do this with assistance. So technically, they're on the loop. They're in the loop, rather. They, they need to fill the orders. But the basis on which they're doing so is very opaque to them. They, they wouldn't be in a good position to second-guess the machine. In right, that, um, right. What's, occur- what's occurring to me as you describe this is that they're almost the drone and the machine is the drone pilot <laughs> you know yeah they're, in they're, fact, the, they're the muscles that are going around picking up the uh the objects at least for the time being until the kiva robots take that job from them too right but uh but yeah, uh, for now they are being directed by the algorithm quite directly uh, which is not, i guess not too different if, from when i want to go somewhere i haven't been before and i type that into Google Maps and hit the little car button and then it tells me how to drive there. Um, and I just listen to it because I don't, I don't want to do the cognitive work of checking it out, even though I guess I could. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, you know, so it is quite similar. But it's I a guess, somewhat similar, although they couldn't even check if they wanted to, really. It'd be too Exactly. You're driving and you can see the road in front of you. Sure. So hope, I know it's happened in the past. There are all these stories of people following the instructions of their sat-nav to the letter and ending up on train tracks with a train coming on or something. Or, I mean, I've heard stories like that. There was that one family that I think actually like froze to death because of some bad Google advice that led them to like a, like a closed road or something. I forget the exact news story, but yeah, it can end very badly even. In, in sure, which just context. shows you shouldn't trust completely the advice you're getting no matter where it comes from but but um, if it's your job and it is something highly opaque like a like complex routing algorithm in a warehouse again the stakes there aren't drone level stakes but yeah it does make a really strong point i agree that like that's a different version of people not being in a position to question it it's not that they're trusting it because oh it's saying with 95% certainty I'm an expert I'm the machine I know what I'm doing it's because they don't even have the basis upon which to evaluate the machine's actions because they're so utterly complex yeah the rationale and basis to the system is opaque to them and they can't they can't second guess it so i, I just wanted to t- talk about one other much lower stakes example which is sort of the idea of personal assistant software because already you know google now is sort of trying to do this like the other day, I put my headphones on before going running, and Google Now told me that my volume was dangerously high and that I should turn it down because it would damage my ears. Um, and I think, you know, obviously, we're going to have more of this type of software that's constantly giving you advice. And I feel like that also runs into that problem in a softer way of I'm getting constant recommendations, and I may or may not feel confident in questioning those recommendations a lot of the time and they may often be right is the thing too so uh it may be totally rational for me to listen to those things is that included in the kinds of things that we would be concerned about with algocracy is like just sort of personal day-to-day direction that's like affecting just how we live our like normal non-political non-military lives yeah absolutely and in fact one of the people who I took inspiration from when I came up with the, the name Threat of Algocracy. And the idea of Algocracy was Evgeny Moritzov. And he would have mentioned all those examples. I, I have a quote from him, which might be relevant here. He says, like, thanks to smartphones or Google Glass, we can now be pinged whenever we are about to do something stupid, unhealthy, or unsound. 
we wouldn't need to know why the action was wrong. The system's algorithms do the moral calculus on their own. And we don't question them because we're being promised, you know, slimmer waistlines, cleaner air, and longer, safer lives in return. So those would be examples too. I guess I, because of my background, which is more in uh, legal and political theory, I'm particularly interested in cases in which algorithms take over what were traditionally public and political and legal decision-making processes. But obviously this can filter into all aspects of life as well. Well, how about since you brought up uh, Morozov, he makes an argument specifically against the type of algocracy that we're talking about that I know you've sort of analyzed and broken down. So maybe you'd like to share that with us? Yeah, sure. So um, this is going to take maybe a little bit of time to map out because I want to explain some of the, the theory behind it as well. With the data mining revolution and the increased amount of surveillance and monitoring and collection of data, there's been a lot of concern in public debate about this for a while. But, I mean, most of the debate has centered around issues of privacy and the invasion of privacy through the collection of data. And that's, I guess, what the Edward Snowden leak um, brought to the fore. And that seems to be kind of dominating the, the political conversation at the moment. So one of the things that Morozov does in his article, which is in fact entitled The Real Privacy Problem, which I think is slightly misleading because he basically says that privacy isn't the issue at all. It's not that um, these things are a threat to privacy, it's that they're actually a threat to democratic governance. So like within theory on, on democracy, there is this notion that individuals are free, they're autonomous, you shouldn't be allowed to interfere with or control their behavior unless you have some kind of legitimate grounds for doing so. And political decision-making, public decision-making that is coercive in some way that controls people's behavior needs to satisfy a number of legitimacy conditions. And within the political philosophy literature, there are two general categories of legitimacy conditions. There are instrumentalist conditions. So a decision-making process or a decision is legitimate if it leads to a better outcome, a fairer outcome, um, or if you're a utilitarian, an outcome that increases social welfare or well-being in some way. And then another category or another type of legitimacy is procedural legitimacy. It's not so much the outcomes, it's the procedures that you adopt to reach those outcomes. And those procedures have to allow for people to contribute to the decision-making process, to be consulted about decisions that might affect them, to question the basis of the decisions that are being made, to have their voices heard and that kind of thing. I mean, I mean, just to give an example that I'm most familiar with would be like a legal trial would be a classic illustration of a public decision-making process where you're making a decision on whether somebody is, let's say if it's a criminal trial, guilty or innocent. Mm-hmm. Okay? So an instrumentalist justification of that process would say that system is, is legitimate if it makes sure that guilty people are punished and innocent people will go free. Ah, okay. And in a sense, it doesn't exactly matter you know, how the trial is conducted, how evidence is gathered, and um, how defendants are treated, provided that the system reaches the right outcome. Right. So, for example, to take it to an extreme place, like an instrumentalist wouldn't care if I torture somebody to get the truth, as long as then we act on the truth in a way that makes sense. Yeah, in a, that would be yeah, the kind of most sort extreme reductio uh, to absurd. Yeah. Whereas uh, somebody who's concerned only with procedure uh, doesn't care at all if a democracy makes uh, terrible laws uh, that are right, as long as everybody has 
talked about them and a majority has agreed and the procedure has been completely fair from start to finish, right? Yeah, I mean, like the, the most kind of purified form of proceduralism would be that, that it, it doesn't matter what the outcome is as long as everyone's had their say or whatever, yeah. Right, so in the right. trial example, as long as the defendant um, has been able to confront his accusers or, and had his say and had a, a strong defense of his position, mm-hmm. as long as all those conditions are met, it's a justified procedure. And then I think I remember from your, the article you read, there's a, a third group that basically requires that both of these things be met. It's not enough to have only a fair procedure. You have to also have uh, fair outcomes or you have to have a decent balance. Yeah, some kind of balance. You want good outcomes and you also want fair procedures. And I, personally, I think that's the most um, sensible position. There is one good reason as well, I think, for ensuring some kind of proceduralist side of things which is that oftentimes we don't know what the correct outcome is. Right, right. We don't know what the ideal outcome is. The only thing we can be certain of is the kind of method that we use to arrive at that outcome. Right, right. Well, since we're often just totally ignorant of, of what good is, really, um, in well, many cases. We might have to experiment, and we might as well right. experiment first with the things that the people want, Pre- right? That people prefer, yeah. sure. Yeah. Uh, and, and there are many cases in which the preference is the closest we have to knowing what's, what's good anyway. Yeah, so that's just kind of the theoretical background. Mm-hmm. So the thing is, algocratic systems might represent the kind of purest uh, trade-off between these two sorts of legitimacy, because perhaps anyway, a lot of uh, algorithm-based decision-making is, is governed by instrumentalist aims. You want the most efficient uh, warehouse stacking system that you know, turns over stock as quickly as possible. You want the safest car that kills the fewest people or or you want the system that makes only identifies people who are guilty of tax evasion, or you can also use algorithms to work out whether somebody's likely risk of uh, committing a crime if they're released from jail. So you want the system that ensures that the people with the lowest risk of recidivism are released. They have the instrumentalist aims, make society safer, healthier, uh, lives longer, all those kinds of things that Maratsov mentioned in the quote I gave earlier on. So like his claim is that a lot of these systems are aimed at ensuring good outcomes, but they don't really respect the proceduralist values that I mentioned earlier, which is allowing the people who are affected by them to participate in them and um, have their say and understand the basis of the decisions that affect them. Right. Right, right. And that's because, I mean, well, oftentimes this code is proprietary. And in general, the code that we're talking about is probably incomprehensible to most people anyways, even if it wasn't proprietary, right? So that's, is that the source of the lack of proceduralist values is the fact that it, it's opaque via both the, the complexity of the code and the fact that it's sort of intentionally hidden in a lot of cases anyways? Um, yeah, so it, it both, both things. So either it's intentionally hidden and because it's proprietary, um, sometimes it might even just be it might be intentionally hidden. It, the default might just be that it's not uh, revealed to people. That's, that's kind of the norm that's emerged that you don't share your source code with with uh, everybody. And then there's also the second problem that you raise, which is that even if these things were transparent or made available to people, there's presumably very few people that could actually understand them. Well, yeah, that's the part of this that I find most interesting and scary because I feel like the proprietary nature and the sort of default that uh, you see what the computer executes, but you don't necessarily see its reasoning either in a human understandable format or in the format of source code is fixable on a societal level. If we decide we want to fix that, we can fix that. We can either through force of law or through cultural norms, we could change that reality. Um, 
we could shift but to, to I, more open sources. For the example, standard. we could require you know publicly available so- uh, services to release their code open. I mean, that's not that could just be a law that got passed, and you know it would. It's obviously not likely to happen. I see the political reasons why that's not likely to happen tomorrow. But if that's something we wanted to do culturally, we could do it. The thing that is less immediately tractable to me is the second thing, which is uh, assuming that people have access to the code. They may be in the situation of the worker in the Amazon uh, warehouse where they don't have the tools to comprehend what the computer is comprehending anyway. So they can never check check its work. Like, you know, you can say, okay, this is the source code. And this is the human readable explanation of, you know, what theory the source code is trying to accomplish. But this data set is enormous and it's growing every second. And your puny human brain just has no ability to uh, input all that data and organize it. So you have to trust what the computer is doing. You have to trust that this source code we gave you is, in fact, what's running on there. And you have to trust that it's accomplishing its goals uh, well, uh, without really any way to understand it well enough to check up on it. And that is, I think, um, frightening because that may be beyond our ability as a society to constrain if we decide we want to. Uh, We may just get to a point where we have no choice but to trust these algorithmic decision-making processes for wide swaths of of what it is that our society does. And thinking back to this end run idea, it doesn't even require the machines to necessarily, you know, be installed in the House of Congress and literally to replace the politicians. They might just be making so many salient decisions in so many different parts of life that the politicians become irrelevant, essentially, or in that the laws that they make become unenforceable by anything other than another algorithmic system that once again, we have to trust what it's doing. It's not just politicians, obviously, it's, it's every uh, public decision-making sure. process. So that includes um, decisions made by bureaucrats. And sure, by, sure. I was just sort of, sort of, of law, yeah. right, using that as a catch-all. You're, you're right. Yeah, just um, three things that occurred to me in response to what you said was, uh, first, while we could, it's in theory possible that we could release the source code uh, to the different algorithms um, if we wanted to, I think we would definitely get some pushback against it and there would be some resistance to it. Uh, one of the main reasons is that people might argue that releasing the source code would make these systems less effective because people could game the system. That those who actually know how it works might be able to um, avoid the algorithm for detecting tax fraud. They'd know what kinds of behavior trigger the system and might and would know how to avoid that in future. So that's that's one concern that people have. So you might get resistance and pushback sure, in that way. Sure, of course. I mean, Google goes to great lengths to keep their algorithm quite secret, uh, I think, to avoid that very thing, you know, uh, abuse by search engine optimization strategy. Well, also, and I don't want to get too hung up on this one point, because I I know you had some other things you wanted to say, John, but uh, if the algorithm, if the rules of the system have to be secret in order to work and not be gameable, that's arguably just bad design of those rules. You should be able to design fair rules in which people can understand them and follow them without them being gameable, right? right? Even using the term game implies that this is sort of a game design problem in a way, and that you should be able to design rules that we can all understand that aren't vulnerable to exploits. Um, and if you do identify an exploit, you should be able to update those rules in a transparent way that then gets rid of that exploit as they appear. 
Um, I mean, that would be a different strategy that you could use to sort of counter the the argument that you were suggesting people might make. Yeah, and let me just point, I would agree with you completely on that. I don't, I'm not a big fan of the gaming the system objection, uh, but it's one that people make, so I just wanted to sure. uh, put it out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other two points were there, and well, you know, even if we did release it, then people don't understand it, and that could be a problem. There are two things to say here. Uh, one is that when I was kind of reinterpreting Morozov's argument and calling it the threat of oligocracy, I was basing that on another argument in political philosophy called the threat of epistocracy, which is by a, a political philosopher named David Estland. And what he was actually talking about was how public decision-making procedures could be taken over by human epistemic elites, so particular human beings who have certain cognitive skills or certain technical know-how that is not available to other people, and they would take over public processes. And he was explaining why this is a problem. Right. So one thing here is that just by making it transparent, you, re- you get rid of the threat of uh, algocracy by just replacing it with the threat of epistocracy. And it, maybe it's a more tractable problem since we know what human beings are like and maybe we're better equipped to deal with them. But it, that would still be maybe another problem. You have this uh, huge elite who know how these things work and have more control as, or, and power as a result. So what you're suggesting is that if it were understandable, it would still be understandable only to an elite few who are trained, let's say, in how to read these things. For example, let's assume it's the engineers who are writing and working on the algorithms themselves, who are then sort of the only people in society who can understand uh, what the rule systems are. Yeah, that's that's fair. I mean, I'm using this technical language because that's just... So in that case, is that how different is that though from our current system of uh, you know incredibly complex legal documentation and uh, you know court histories and precedents uh, being interpreted by lawyers? Uh, couldn't you just sort of hire these people, and couldn't there be a a system in place by which you are guaranteed the the right to hire these people uh, the way we do with lawyers uh, in certain circumstances, uh, so that all people would have access to an expert, if not direct access to to understanding. Yeah, it isn't hugely different from the system that we have at the moment, uh, but perhaps I should add here that I, I've written another kind of paper where I've argued that the, this is one of the problems with the system that we have at the moment. Yeah, well, um, I would agree with that, actually. Um, but, but it is a system that we've accepted in our society. I totally agree yeah, with you. That yeah, in, in a sense, yeah. like, I think I mentioned this, and uh, maybe I don't mention it in the, in the piece that I wrote online, uh, but I have it in another piece that I forthcoming soon, which is that um, it's maybe it's better the devil you know than the devil you don't. So at least we know what, what epistemic human elites are like. Um, so we're, <laughs> we're happier, we're more comfortable with that sure. than we are with um, algorithms or automated systems controlling us. Yeah. You know, for the time being, you know, these algorithms are written by engineers. And uh, while any one particular outcome may not be predictable because some of these systems are so complex... Um, some engineer wrote it. Some engineer understands the basic core principles. But it does seem like if we're speculating a little further out, there's the possibility of algorithms that are maybe not even generated directly by people. I mean, at some point, a person has to have originated it. But uh, an algorithm for generating algorithms is not a totally absurd premise. You know, when you yeah, talk Dar- about Darwinian algorithms, in a sense. Yes. Sure, they can be derived, like right, uh, based on maybe or genetic some, algorithms, right? some simple uh, first principles and, and maybe are not actually understood by any human. Uh, the other thing that my brain was jumping to, and this is another sort of far-flung thing, is at a certain point, one might have algorithms that explain algorithms to people, right? <laughs> Essentially, robot lawyers whose job it is to read the robot law code 
and provide that service. We already have some of those. The, the digital assistants that you were referring to earlier are examples of that. Sure. Yeah. Um, so that might, that might be a technological solution to the problem of people not being able to comprehend the decision-making pr- procedures, right? It, it won't solve the problem of participation because the humans just won't be They'll capable. just be told. To they won't be works. capable of, of participating. They won't be able to sort the data in the same way. Yeah. But uh, perhaps the comprehension part of it could be ameliorated by still more technology, which then its job is to basically put all the complex things that the computer is doing back into human understandable language so that it can be ratified or understood by by the electorate, say. Um, yeah, no, that, that's fair enough. And um, just in case anyone's listening and uh, is worried by the fact that I said I had three points earlier on and I only mentioned two of them, <laughs> my third point was just the point that you just you raised, which is that eventually the algorithms themselves may not be understandable by any human being because they are either written by a computer-based process or um, or even nowadays, like some of the systems that we have uh, are come up with matches in, in data that weren't anticipated by by engineers or right right weren't envisaged uh, by them and uh, like that's just one other thing here which is when you're talking about comprehension of the system there's an issue with like how detailed the comprehension do we need in order for a decision making process to be legitimate because if you think back to the example of the Amazon uh, warehouse the storage algorithm there is a rationale behind it that humans can understand uh, which is that you want a more efficient system. So they, they appreciate why it's being done. So they have that kind of coarse-grained comprehension. Right. They, they don't know all the details of how it works, so they can't uh, follow every item of stock and they can't uh, figure out how they should um, find their way around the warehouse. Uh, so there are, there are interesting issues to be worked out here as to the level of coarse-grainedness or fine-grainedness that we need to satisfy the comprehension requirement. Right, and that seems to be um, inherent in a lot of these human-based processes too, like uh, people don't necessarily understand every little nuance of a given legal um, procedure or uh, like a piece of legislation, for example, you know, which is thousands and thousands of pages and, you know, nobody but the person who wrote it has ever read it all the way through or something. Uh, But they at least understand the basics of what it's trying to accomplish and, you know, then a lawyer maybe understands a bit more uh, and they can hire that person. So maybe there is a, Maybe this is like a kind of, you need to understand enough. You don't necessarily need to understand everything. I understand a very basic top level idea of like what Google's doing when it page ranks, but I don't have any access to all the little details that it takes into consideration. But I trust it enough that it's going to find the page I want that I'm still willing to use it. So I think, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. I think you need to comprehend it on some level, but it's not actually clear to me that you need to comprehend it on uh, the deepest level with with the kind of human processes like legislation and law that's written by human beings you might argue that there is at least an in principle comprehensibility that you know the statute is a thousand pages long but in principle i could read it and it would be understandable to me maybe i need a little bit of training and a lawyer to explain it to me but it's in principle comprehensible to human beings and you might argue that there's a difference with the algorithms depending on how they work that there isn't that in principle comprehensibility so that might be another distinction between the two that would be cause for com- some concern I, I think we've kind of sketched out what the concerns are right which is that it sort of undermines the the proceduralist values that we have regarding the decisions that we make in society you, you were summarizing Morozov's argument or, or, or putting it into your own words. I mean, do you find that argument compelling? Do you, would you say you agree with it? 
Yeah, I think there's something worth worrying about here and worth um, discussing. And maybe you know, before we become completely submerged in an algocratic society or an algocracy, it's worth thinking about this and thinking about ways and perhaps we could solve this problem if there are any such ways. Now, we've touched on some possible solutions indirectly, but I, I wonder too if you have a, a particular solution that you would advocate for. I mean, given that this is a problem and I agree that we should clearly discuss it more and think about it more uh, as a society, like, what do you think we should do? Yeah, I do have um, sort of a, an answer, but maybe not a very reassuring one. So perhaps first it's worth classifying possible solutions. The two things you could do with it is, one, you could either try to resist the threat, so just prevent the construction and use of, of um, algocratic systems. So like I think Ted said earlier on, it's a design problem, so maybe we could just stop designing systems like this. And that would be maybe Maratsov's solution and the one that he argues for in the article that inspired this. He talks about politicizing the problem and maybe also creating uh, technologies that allow us to resist it, so to stop our data being collected. I think he refers to them as provocative digital services. So maybe you could do that, you could resist the, the threat. Or alternatively, you could try to accommodate it in some way, ac- accommodate algocracy. So try to keep the good parts of it, the fact that it's maybe more efficient, it leads to better outcomes, and find some way for humans to to be able to participate in the uh, decision-making process. Yeah, I think the second category is just generally more interesting to me because uh, given our current state of already relying on quite a lot of these algorithms in our world, it seems unlikely to me that we're simply going to just stop making any and all systems that... Uh, use this sort of design philosophy. Um, yeah, I, I suspect that's true. And, and that's one of the criticisms I would have of Maratsov is that it's a little bit too idealistic. And I think the kinds of pressures that are in place to create systems like this are perhaps too great to be resisted. Yeah, it's possibly not even desirable uh, to resist it completely because uh, as we've just talked about, many of these things have the potential to do genuine good. Uh, whether that's saving lives, driving cars, or or just being more efficient in X process, uh, I think you know we we don't necessarily want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Plus, it's very hard to institute technological bans, which is something we've talked about many times on this podcast before. So it does seem like the best thing to do is to try to figure out what kinds of designs or constraints or accommodations, like you say, could lead to the best possible outcome, given that. Algorithms are almost certainly going to be making more decisions in our world, you know, as time goes on. Yeah, and just before we talk about those, uh, another thing to say about why we don't want might want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. One reason is because, as you say, the decisions reached might be better, might be you know healthier, safer, longer lives for all of us if we have these systems in place. But another reason, which is kind of interesting and is argued for by a American, I think, um, lawyer or, or legal theorist called Tal Zarsky, which is that these systems might actually be fairer in some ways. Yeah, so they yeah, might yeah. be procedurally better. Sure, I could see that, uh, like eliminating biases or... Yeah, they're, they're less prone to human biases. And in fact, he does make an interesting point that um, one reason why there's so much resistance to systems like this is that it could be that they threaten existing 
human elites, uh, <laughs> class-based elites or political elites, because they threaten the kind of system of biases that keeps them in, in their, a good position. Right. Any kind of new order is always going to have its opponents. And, and also, I think, you know, to some extent, you know, the gut reaction that people might have to not liking these things is something you can problematize. You know, people feeling like there's something wrong about this because I don't understand it or I fear it because I don't understand it or simply it's new, right? And I think, or simply because it's not human, right? And so that's not a very nuanced view to take, but that's the kind of sort of knee-jerk view that society might have that might, you know, lead for people to at least cry for some sort of resistance strategy without, you know, contemplating, well, okay, what, how can we actually maximize the benefits of this and minimize the, the faults? Yeah, exactly. So um, if we moved on then to the, how could we accommodate the, the threat or be more involved in these decision-making processes? I think there are four possible accommodationist solutions. One, which we've touched upon and discussed already, so we could just skip over this quickly, but it's the lawyer solution, which is to create more rights for people, more rights to access information about them or uh, block data being collected about them or allow them to know when data is being collected, allow them to review the algorithms or have some sort of regulator in place that would review the algorithms. So th there's two uh, legal theorists, um, Frank Pasquale and uh, Daniel Keats Citron, who make this point in relation to credit scoring algorithms, that you should have some kind of regulator in place that uh, checks these on a frequent basis for whether they are good, fair, just um, algorithms. So that would be a potential solution. I'm not a huge fan of that solution just because, I, again, I think it, it replaces the threat of algocracy with the, the problem of, of human elites who have a result, have more control because they're the ones that are empowered to look into these matters or who have the training and technical know-how to understand these processes. But, I mean, that might be a, a possible um, solution. Again, I said it might be better the devil you know than the devil you don't. Well, I also think there's a difference between, say, a regulator in some office somewhere who's a single person uh, with a lot of authority uh, who may or may not have people's best interests in mind and some kind of more distributed scenario whereby people are maybe guaranteed to a code lawyer to advocate on their behalf by reviewing the algorithms and the data, right? So I, I think there are ways you could implement it that might be less... Less fundamentally elitist? Yes. Yeah, sure, there are ways. I mean, I, I don't think you would be able to completely run around or avoid the problem of some kind of human elites. Agreed. But uh, you, as you say, you might be able to distribute that power over more people. So it's, um, it's, it's not that you're concentrating the, uh, the power in, in a small number of individuals. Sure, that would be one better way of implementing this kind of legal solution to the problem. Sure. And, and like we talked about earlier in the podcast, this may eventually just run out of steam as things get too incomprehensible even to the human elite. And then you're starting to rely on sort of robot elites. And then at that point, you're back to the same problem again. <laughs> sort of run, run yourself back around. Uh, if, uh, if elites can no longer really comprehend these things well enough to advocate for you, then, uh, then this legal solution runs out of steam. Yeah, uh, sure. Yeah, so the next strategy would be to try and actually Im improve the powers or abilities of human beings. So what we could call the enhancement solution. So you're trying to enhance their epistemic abilities, their ability to understand things, their ability to store information, and maybe then you could use that to 
uh, train them to have the knowledge or capacity to question these systems themselves. Uh, this is interesting to me for a few reasons. One is that I specialized in ethics of human enhancement before, and I've, I've written a paper arguing that the problem that I mentioned earlier of human elites, one way of resolving that would be to epistemically enhance ordinary human beings. Uh, yeah, I read a bit of that paper in prep for this, and I was finding that uh, to be a super interesting argument. The idea that by uh, giving ordinary humans enhanced cognitive abilities through, let's say, um, future uh, technologies, uh, either nootropics or um, uh, physical technologies that uh, go into your body, uh, you might be able to, you know, make everybody a lawyer, sort of, or uh, give everybody that same level of knowledge and therefore uh, fight against um, this problem of, of trained, knowledgeable you know, he's, you're calling it epistemic elites, but it's not that different from like the old idea of technocrats, basically. Yeah, People who are technocrats, sure, yeah. In a certain way, being able to control very much more than, than ordinary people because of the things they understand. Yeah, one thing that's worth distinguishing between, though, here is the d- different forms that enhancement could take. And sure. very roughly, there's a distinction by a philosopher called Nicholas Agar between modest and radical forms of enhancement. So a modest form of enhancement would be really just pushing us up to the kind of existing limits of human performance. So pushing us into that elite bracket. So ordinary people into the elite bracket. Would that be just education or are you talking about more extreme measures? No, I mean, this has nothing to do with the technology per se. It has to do with the amount of improvement, if you like, the amount of enhancement. So it's, it's modest in the sense that Obviously, there's a distribution of abilities across the human population as a whole. I guess it follows a bell curve. So you're going to try and push more people higher up the, the level of ability, if you know what I mean, or shift the um, bell curve to the right, I guess. Right. So uh, just to put it in concrete terms, like if we were to make the average person as smart as Einstein, sort of. Uh, yeah, exactly. Something like that. And yeah. as far as we know, there's no education process that does that. I mean, maybe there's one we haven't... Uh, tried yet. Um, so modest in the sense that you're not going above some level that's determined by like the current best that humans have to offer. Is that what you mean? Yeah, it's it's within the range of existing kind of human abilities. Got it. Okay. Yeah, and I mean the the way in which you do this, there are many different ways in which you could do it. I suspect a combination of biomedical enhancements, you know, smart drugs, or uh, brain implants of some kind with uh, education would be the way to do this. I mean, the notion of that line seems very thorny to me, though, right? I mean, like, preserving some sort of ceiling on enhancement seems implicit in in that proposal, right? And it seems like there'd be so much temptation to exceed that line as you are approaching it. Assuming that that's technically possible to do. I mean, it may be Uh, that the line is in nature or in in the limits of our own technological abilities, since we don't know how this stuff's going to roll out. But to the extent that the line is some sort of uh, principle, I would worry that that principle would quickly get ignored. Yeah, so I'm not arguing that we shouldn't enhance people beyond the human limit, although I think Nicholas Agar would say that we should only engage in modest forms of enhancement and we shouldn't engage in in radical forms of enhancement. I'm just uh, appealing to this distinction because I think it's interesting in uh, in relation to this threat of algocracy that I'm talking about. Sure, Um, sure. So just by way of categorization. Yeah, so what I'm saying is that if and I think this is more feasible anyway in the short term is that we could enhance people up to this modest level that I'm referring to, up to the extremes of, of human performance at the moment. Th- th- again, that would only get us to a situation where 
humans are as good as existing human elites, that doesn't mean they would be able to question and understand the algorithms themselves. Right, but they'd have at least as much access to it as, say, the person writing the algorithm. So that would put them on more equal footing than they are now. Yeah? Exactly. So this is where my solution that I mentioned earlier comes in. I think some combination of of modest enhancement with the kind of legal solution of making these things more transparent and reviewable, that might be the the best we can hope for at the moment. Although, again, the timelines here are problematic because our ability to enhance people, that mightn't come for a a while and we might already have an algocratic system or have gone even further in the direction of an algocracy by the time that kind of technology becomes available. Right. We might have gotten to the point specifically where the, you know, the people who write algorithms now, the engineers and mathematicians, uh, can no longer understand the new algorithms by the time right, that that, that happens, in which case you're uh, enhancing everybody up to a level... Which is now obsolete. Which is not, which is not sufficient, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, that solution that I referred to of modest enhancement plus some kind of reform to the law... that makes things more transparent and available. It might be uh, keep things in check for a while, but mightn't work long term. We may need to engage radical forms of enhancement to keep up over the longer period of time. Right. Well, and I like that suggestion because it points the way to things that we could theoretically start doing now, right? I mean, we don't have some of these more extreme enhancement technologies, but what you're describing implies that we should work harder at education uh, for people of understanding code and understanding programming, and that we should, you know, work harder to consider consequences of these algorithms and maybe start putting some of these legal frameworks in place or at least talking about them. So I think, you know, even though some of these more extreme enhancement technologies don't exist and some of the more extreme algorithms that we're concerned about don't exist yet, I feel like there's room to start that plan now, that kind of combined legal reform and modest enhancement plan. Yeah, it's something we can start working on today or tomorrow, maybe if we're bit tired today. We can start on tomorrow. <laughs> right. Um, so anyways, th- there's, I, th- I think, a couple more things on your list of accommodations. So why don't we uh, go through those? Um, I mean, one form of radical enhancement is actually, well, it's not actually radical enhancement. It's uh, partnerships between humans and machines. And, and the model I'm thinking of is freestyle chess. Well, obviously, the best computers are far better than human beings now. And, but the best chess is being played by teams of of humans and uh, computers. I believe this is still true anyway for the time being. Yep. So the, the partnership between the between a human and some kind of digital assistant or artificial intelligence uh, is better at doing a particular task than other um, than the computer left alone. So finding more ways in which humans could partner with machines might be one way that they can participate in the process and actually reach better outcomes and feel like they're making a real difference or contribution to the process. That's, that's one point. The other point that is more philosophical is that there is this argument in the philosophy of mind called the extended mind thesis. Uh, I think it was originally proposed by David Chalmers and Andy Clark back in the late 90s, which is that if you adopt a functionalist theory of mind according to which mental states are components or subcomponents in a functional system, a system that produces some kind of output like a belief or a desire or an intention. If the mind is a functional system, then there's no reason why what forms part of that functional system is only within the brain or within the the walls of, of the human body. That actually the mind can be distributed across an individual's environment. So just to give one of the examples that they used, if somebody 
has a, a bad memory or has some kind of memory problem, they might use a journal to record their what happens to them, and the journal becomes effectively part of their memory, part of their mental system, even though it's in the external environment. It's it forms part of their mind, you know, like the film Memento. Um, Guy Pierce, all the tattoos on his body are part of his uh, mental system, if you like. Well, and this becomes much more literal feeling when you start thinking about, uh, say, Google Glass technology that's providing you with your journal entries, like right in your field of vision, the moment that you want to recall them, right? That starts to feel even more like that's literally an extension of your mind. Yeah. So having this digital partner or partnership between a human being and a digital system of some kind, you could argue that the, the combination of the two far, forms some overarching mental system, which collectively understands the process or understands the uh, decision-making system. Right, right. So it just, it understands that it's outsourcing a certain amount of its reasoning to some other thing. Yeah, so like the, the Chalmers-Clark argument was, is that it's not just that it's outsourcing, it, it's that it's part of its mind, it's part of its uh, mental operating system. Right, right, right. I, 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 this recalls uh, something I read recently, which was, you know, they had determined that people, the way that they treat Google, the way that they uh, store Google in their minds is very similar to the way they store like a person they know. Uh, and this certainly uh, anecdotally feels right to me as far as the way that I use Google, I think to myself, oh, I don't know that, but I can ask Google and Google will know that. So in my mind, there's like a sort of module called Google that I know I can ask certain kinds of questions and I'll get the answer to. Yeah, this, this is the argument from the extended mind thesis anyway, at least as I understand it, is that yeah, yeah, um, yeah. it is in, in effect part of you, even though it's not integrated into your biology. And I wonder whether that doesn't, you know, whether that doesn't apply pretty broadly to this whole algocracy thing. Like, aren't we just going to kind of feel like all of these algorithms that are, I mean, maybe this is the threat of them, is that they, they do almost appear to be coming from us. Like, uh, one of the examples in your article, John, was um, of uh, uh, quantified self uh, trackers, right? Mm-hmm. People who, yeah. uh, you know, wear a Fitbit or something, and then they make all kinds of decisions based on that data being reported to them which they don't have the capacity to track and analyze that data on their own. You can't count all your steps in a day. It's impossible. You, you, know, you, you wouldn't be able to do anything else if you're trying to do that. So maybe what's pernicious but also, but also powerful about these things is that they do appear as if they're you, but, um, but in some way, they're not you. <laughs> in some way, real way, they're, they're being controlled by you know, potential elites or organizations that don't necessarily have your best interest at heart. Just like John's example of the phone telling you to turn your volume down, I wouldn't be surprised if that was in there for insurance reasons, you know, for, to, or for you know, legal reasons to prevent them from getting sued over, I believe Apple was sued over uh, loud headphone volumes, you know, on their devices. So that may not be there for your benefit. That may be there for, for Android's, but you know, for Google's benefit or something. But so, it's definitely passed off as for your benefit or it oh, certainly yeah, and can it, be. It feels as if it is because it feels like it's coming from you. Yeah, like this, is, this is a good point in, insofar as that uh, this is one of the ways in which we may end up in an algocracy is because we are tempted by all these things. Because if I'm a member of the quantified self movement, I think having all this tracking software and tracking the amount of calories I'm consuming every day or the number of steps that I take, it's improving me in some way. It's making me a better person. It's making me like a superhuman being of some kind. 
But just to get back to the notion of how could this be a solution to the problem, having a partnership with a machine, a very close-knit partnership between yourself and some algorithm, maybe everybody is given a set of digital assistants that they partner up with, and then using this slightly esoteric philosophical idea of the extended mind thesis, you could argue, well, it's all part of their mental system then, and it helps them to understand the, the process around them. So I'm thinking of digital assistants that, as you mentioned earlier, will explain things to them, will make it comprehensible, will allow them to somehow contribute to a decision-making process. This makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, this sounds like basically an, an ecosystem of algorithms, like where the algorithms are very much woven into the fabric of all parts of life. And, uh, you know, it's not about whether we want an algocracy or not. It's that we have an algocracy, but that within that there are good algorithms and bad algorithms and algorithms that you partner with and algorithms that you have an oppositional relationship to and some that advocate on your behalf and some that don't have your best interests in mind. And the humans are interwoven with this system. I guess the question is, you know, is that a symbiotic relationship uh, or is that a more of a parasitic one? I mean, that seems to me to be the most plausible future is one that's not like a simple rule by elites. It's that, you know, we have the same kind of push and pull warring power systems that we have now with probably some dominant elite structure, at least a little bit. But that, you know, the battle is being fought not purely by humans anymore. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. But I guess I would have a couple of worries about it still. One, which you mentioned already, it has to do with the ownership over these algorithms. And again, if if we don't truly understand how they work or how our digital assistants work, uh, there could still be the problem that they're controlled by Google or um, Facebook or whatever. You can't can't be certain that they have your best interest at heart. So yeah, I mean, this does seem like it's a way of legitimizing algocracy rather than a way of avoiding it, right? It's like... This is the argument that we, the elites will make as they justify algorithmic takeover? Is that what, perhaps, <laughs> yeah. Like that uh, That you could have, you know, going back to your summary of uh, Morozov's argument, you could have a legitimate governance system that is algocratic in nature so long as everyone has their own sufficiently powerful algorithm that they can be reasonably certain has their interests at heart. Yeah, that's that's the idea here. It's a question of how the, the technology is distributed and there are issues in about ownership and control over the technology. Right. If you had some way of making sure that it was widely distributed, everybody had a network of digital assistants that allowed them to be more active participatory citizens in, in the community and they had control over those systems, it it might be a partial solution. The other problem with it then, though, would be just because, at least as I'm framing it, it it relies on this extended mind thesis. The extended mind thesis is a controversial philosophical thesis, and a lot of people disagree with it. Uh, And even people who advocate it would say that uh, these external systems don't necessarily form part, or clearly don't form part of your conscious understanding of things. You could have an algorithm issuing you recommendations or giving you advice, but Again, you're not literally understanding or comprehending the process that it used to come up with those um, recommendations or advice. So again, it, maybe it's just the same the same problem emerging once more. Could you argue re- regarding the extended mind thesis that there are parts of your brain currently that are not part of your conscious understanding? I mean, I think that's not actually an uncommon view, like right. that the brain is already modules that aren't fully in communication, right? So there's an extent to which you know, what we're calling the brain or the mind 
already assumes some version of the extended mind thesis, right? Because we have some brain processes that are presumably not entirely conscious. I mean, I'm not a neuroscientist, so... No, absolutely. There is a huge number of processes that are not transparent to our conscious understanding. That, that are, you know, we make decisions that we rationalize after the fact that maybe we don't fully understand the basis of, of the decision that we made. There are people that argue that. My point here just ties back to the, the, so the threat of algocracy and the, the threat to the legitimacy of the political system. So again, it, it's what do you actually need to make it procedurally legitimate? Do you need that kind of conscious comprehensibility or conscious understanding? And if you do, mm. then this extended mind thesis and digital assistance and partnerships with, with algorithms wouldn't be a solution to the threat. And so that would be then to the final possibility here, the final solution. So the partnerships that I'm imagining there are non-integrated. They're not integrated into your biology. But if we engage in more fanciful speculation, maybe we could become machines of sorts. We could upload our minds or, and become integrated into a digital ecosystem. Right. And this that'd, is that'd be like the, the Ray Kurzweil utopia or ideal. Right, right. This idea of merging with the technology so that there's no longer a meaningful difference between human and non human technology anyway. But that does seem like a little bit um it seems like a possible conclusion, but how do you get there? Yeah, exactly. It seems like, like an endpoint that makes maybe some sense, but that it would be very messy getting from here to there. Yeah, sure. It's maybe it's an apotheosis of the technological trends that we're seeing at the moment. But how we get there and what happens is a, is another matter. And so the other solutions that I mentioned might be more realizable in, in the short term. Right. Right. There's one final point. Maybe I should just make on on that the radical enhancement or solution there, the integration with tech, complete integration within technology, mm -hmm. is which is that if we do that then it's not clear if we, we will continue to be persons in the sense that is understood in, in contemporary political theory. And it's not clear that we will care about things like legitimacy conditions for public decision-making procedures. <laughs> right. Our entire evaluative framework for life might be so radically altered that things like the threat of algocracy don't even occur to us anymore, aren't a threat or a concern anymore. So in a sense, all bets are off if we reach that point. I don't sure. know. Sure, sure. Yeah, it seems like... At that point, it just becomes so hard to think about. It's really... Uh, yeah, and if you like, that's part of the idea, the original idea of the technological singularity, right. the notion that it is this prediction horizon that you really can't see beyond that point or what, what the world will be like once right. we reach that point. Well, you can speculate pretty wildly, but you can't, you can't possibly take everything into consideration. It's just too large. Um, yeah, this has been uh, really interesting and wonderful. Thank you so much, uh, John, for being our first guest. We didn't know how this was going to go, but uh, I, I think it went really, really well. And I think at this point, we've, we've got to wrap it up. Uh, thanks for, for being here. And, yes, thank uh, you. It's been fun. This has been really fun. I hope you'll come back and do another uh, show with us in the future. Uh, w one final thing, too. Uh, maybe you want to uh, share with our audience where they can find some of your writing on the web? Yeah, I write a blog of my own it's called philosophicaldisquisitions.blogspot.com perhaps it was an unfortunate choice of title maybe it's too long and complicated for people to remember <laughs> we'll, we'll link to it yeah so. we'll put a link on the yeah. bottom of this post and uh i also write i also write on the institute for ethics and emerging technology blog and some of my work is also republished on humanity plus magazine from time to time Excellent. Thanks very much, John. Uh, we will put some links to uh, John's work. You should definitely check it out. It's terrific. And we've thanks very much for listening. Uh, as always, please leave us a 
rating and a comment on whatever system you're listening to us on and uh, send us an email or, or let us know what you think of um, the new format. Uh, we are still experimenting and improving things and we love to hear from you. Also, uh, we have a, a Twitter handle now, which is at RTF underscore podcast. So uh, if you'd like to keep up to date on the new episodes as they come out using a different system that's not iTunes or Stitcher, then that's a good way to follow us. And we'll also be uh, posting periodic uh, small bite-sized bits of futurism there. So follow us at RTF underscore podcast. Yeah, or you can search for Review the Future on Twitter. Thanks. Thanks for listening. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.